Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Steve Bramucci. Before we get to Steve, I have a few announcements. And first and foremost, our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. You can go there and see uh, stories that I've written, stories that some of the guests have written. You can see links to our social media, see links to the guest social media. Our social media is, of course, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter, there's links on the site to our Facebook page, which is Travel Tales Podcast. If you want to see uh, my other life, which is, of course, uh, stand-up comedy and all my uh, show reels and my showbiz site is funnymike.com. So go there and check that out. On the Travel Tales site, there are links to Stitcher Radio and Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe for free. As always, I ask nothing and except that you uh, give us a good rating. That helps more people find the show because it boosts our presence there, and that's a cool thing for you to do, and I'd appreciate that. If you think you might be right for the show, or you know somebody who's uh, right for the show, or you have some questions you want to ask me, maybe travel-related questions, or maybe just to say nice things, you can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. Okay, Steve Bramucci. He's a travel writer. He's an author. He's an editor over at Uproxx.com, U-P-R-O-X-X. Dot com, which is a uh, culture and lifestyle site. If you didn't know that already, a lot of people in the travel know know about uprocks.com. They do a lot of uh, lifestyle content, and travel is something that they do a lot of coverage on. And former uh, guests of the show and friends of the show, Kinga Phillips and Justin Walter, have contributed to a recent article that just came out on the hot places to visit in 2020, which is a cool list. And Justin actually hooked me up with Steve, and Steve was nice enough to come over and sit down for a chat. Justin had told me that Steve had been a lot of places and and was a cool guy, and Justin was not wrong. Steve dropped out of college to hitchhike and travel around the country. He's got great stories from traveling around Africa, Asia. He has a lot of great insight on where the travel industry is headed how social media affects it. That was just a cool guy to talk to. You can learn all about him at stephenbramucci.com, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-B-R-A-M-U-C-C-I.com. And of course, you can see his main gig at uprocks.com. But he was a pleasure to talk to, and I think you're going to like listening to what he had to say. Please enjoy my conversation with Stephen Bramucci. Your title would be, was it editor? Editorial director, editor, um, yeah. Of Uproxx. Of Uproxx. So the Uproxx is life. It's a lifestyle thing. Yeah. Culture. I mean, Uproxx is very famous. Like, so I I don't edit entertainment. Okay. So, and I don't edit music. guy. Travel, lifestyle, sex, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Not rock and roll. Travel, (laughs) travel, sex, drugs, food. Okay. Drinks. Great. So how long have you been doing that? Where did that start? Um, are we recording now? Yeah, it's a, we can, uh, we can, we can cool. fire it up. Because it's kind of an interesting story. Um, so I'll I mean, be the judge of that. 
Oh, I like you already. <laughs> uh, no, so so as a freelancer, I was I was a freelance travel writer, and I had won a couple awards in the span of a couple years, and I was feeling pretty good about myself. And I was using this method. Um, digital media hadn't collapsed, so I, I didn't have a, a cold panic like every freelancer does these days. Um, and I was using this method called the Pomodoro method, where I'd work for twenty seven minutes and then three minutes off. Twenty. It's because it's of this Pomodoro. Uh, tomato-shaped timer that you use. Oh, and so I've never heard of this. It's supposed to be this really effective thing, and you work for 27, or, or people said it's it like a run-walk kind of thing. Yeah, exactly, and then you take a break. And, of course, what you're supposed to do is, like, your three-minute break, you're supposed to lift weights yeah, take or, a walk like, around. do some cool yeah. thing, go to the bathroom, or whatever. And what I started doing instead is I kept going to this website, uprocks.com, and I was reading their articles, and every single break I was going to their site and reading – there are little snippets on movies or TV that I liked, or they did like Breaking Bad breakdowns and the, in yeah. the peak of Breaking Bad, all that stuff. So I was going to it, and then finally I was just like, well, this doesn't make sense. Um, and I emailed like cold over the transom, and I was like, look, I, I go to your site probably like 10 times a day, <laughs> so I think you could do really well with lifestyle stuff. And they emailed cold over the transom too, and they said okay, let's talk about it. And the conversation, you know, kind of went on just kind of tapping each other every couple couple weeks for a couple months. And then they were like, here's what we'll pay you. Come do it. That's great. And um, yeah, and it has really developed. And it's really been cool. And I thought foolishly that like, oh, you have this massive entertainment property that all you have to do is say like, we're doing travel now, we're doing food now, and and they'll come, which actually isn't true. Like people know what they want and they go to the places they want it. So it took a while to build an audience, to build like you know commenters who were there for food, commenters who were there for for travel, right. and then start to develop that. But but we've done it now. How long have you been there? So I've been there. This is my fifth year. Fifth year. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Is there an office or In do you... digital media? That's a million that, yeah, years. Like I'm the that's ancient. Yeah, exactly. I might as well be like <laughs> tenured, a tenured professor, like stroking my beard here. <laughs> do you do you work from home or is there an office here? So I work from home. We all work from home to some degree, and then we have an office in Culver City um, that I drive up to once a week. Okay. Now, do they? Like in terms of the travel aspect, do they pay you to travel or is it on you or do you find contributors? And- um, so that's a good question. <laughs> that's a good question. You know, it's a, there's a I, I wrote a page on our site that lives permanently on our site about press trips and how press trips power the, the travel industry and what that means for everyone. Right. Like because I've taken it, a few. It's yeah. a weird thing. Right. And you've taken them and and, you know, they can be incredibly intoxicating. And yeah. that can leave you with a lot of blind spots. Um, they can be they can they can do a great job of of helping you look where the light is in a, in a bad way, saying like this is this is right. all the best stuff we want to show now. Ignore get that other stuff. Country. Ignore we that other stuff this? over there. Do we yeah, you can say closer? whatever you want. Okay, so yeah, this is all, everything we want to show, and then and then get out of the country. Or they can be a really good chance to get an idea and a sense of a place. Not at your expense because digital media and media in general really doesn't have the money to to support that type of travel unless I mean even Condé Nast takes press trips like there's it's just really hard right but aren't aren't a lot of the um, uh, tourism boards and uh, like all these people that get or countries that give these uh, press trips uh, I've heard that they're starting to cut down on who they bring in because they're they're it's hard to judge the bang for their buck they're getting or. There's a lot of influencers who just want free stuff. Sure. I mean, I don't deal with that because because we're pretty well known and we're a big outlet, so I don't get... No one ever right. is like, 
they've heard of you checking me and going yeah. like, oh, like, well, are you it's sure like, you guys are going to be able to deliver? But I do see that with a lot of influencers. And, you know, there's just so much error baked into all of media, not to go like all big media on you. But when I was working at Glossy Magazines, which is how I started out in travel writing, Glossy Magazines got to, there's a great article about this today in the New York Times, but Glossy Magazines got to report what was called a pass-through rate. So that essentially they were pretending that a magazine that landed on your front table was actually getting read by four people rather than just you. Okay. But of course, you and I know that we actually don't read most of the magazines we used to subscribe to. Sure. Certainly not like the glossies that that came for free, like, you know, whatever it was, LA Monthly or some city-based yeah. magazine. So the idea that they were, you know, reporting to Versace and the fashion brands who advertise there, well, we have a circulation of two two hundred thousand when they were only printing fifty thousand magazines is a little wild, right? Yeah. And so there's always like these errors kind of baked into the system, and one of the errors <laughs> baked into the system is like when the influencer thing blew up, every travel board in the world was like, "This is the thing." We need to react, and they didn't have any way of of equating what value looked like, and so they reacted. But now they have to recalibrate, right? Right. And so they're. I, I think they're gradually doing that. But if they waste some money in the process, I think they'll be fine. You know. <laughs> well, let's get to you then. What What is your uh, back? You're from Laguna Beach originally. No, I'm from Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon. If Portland, Oregon. My background is truly like I am one of these people who is truly like has a background in travel. So I dropped out of college. I hitchhiked around the country, which no one was doing. I mean, I'm old, and still no one was doing it at that time. <laughs> You're old? Still, I mean, you Come know. on now. Uh, but Look who you're talking to, for Christ's sake. <laughs> Wait, so you but, hitchhiked at a time when, you know, this is not the 70s when right. you know, like every hippie was hitchhiking around everywhere. This is dangerous. Yeah, it it can still be. people were still telling you not to hitchhike. Sure. You know, I got, there was this incredible thing. I mean, truly one of the most amazing things, which was there was a deal on Greyhound Bus in so this was 1999 there's a deal on greyhound bus that said for 90 dollars you have a greyhound bus pass like like the old Eurail passes yeah, that they did I, greyhound yeah. bus pa- pass for three months i've heard of this anywhere the greyhound bus goes for 90 dollars for three months <laughs> and i would just i would book you know i would do stuff in the day in miami and then look at the schedule and take an eight-hour bus and sleep on the bus and wake up somewhere and do stuff in the day in Tampa and whatever it was, you know. And I just traveled around the world like that and hitchhiking around the United States at a time when people really like all these kids I went to college with. And the reason I dropped out is like they had the money to go to Europe. They were people were doing semesters abroad. That had become really big. The college loan boom was happening, so we were all taking out money we didn't own. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. and I, I didn't have, like, you know, my parents weren't able to co-sign for my loans or whatever, so, so I didn't have that opportunity. So I dropped out of school, and I was like, I want to travel like all the cool kids who I'm going to school with. I'm just going to hitchhike around the country. And it was really fascinating. How, how far away from graduation were you? Like, how, how long was, did you go? I was halfway through. Okay. And I, I eventually went back. What did your family think of your uh, of your? No one thought I'd go back to college. That was the biggest <laughs> one. No one thought that I'd ever go and get a degree. Um, and then everyone was really supportive. Like they thought it was cool. Um, you know, they thought it was an interesting thing. I think people were scared. And my parents did a great thing, which is, you know, I didn't grow up in poverty. And I don't want to. I don't want to present that. I grew up with working class parents, but they they never said like, hey, just in case there's three grand in your bank account. If you get in a jam and you need to have $200 to get a hotel one night, here's to it. No, they're like, whatever money you have, that's the money you have. And at that, at that time, <laughs> just because I was a shitty teenager, um, you know, we weren't really communicating about money a lot. 
And so I'd end up in a city. I ended up in Miami. I didn't have a dime to my name. And I worked roughneck labor with the Cuban laborers, Cuban day laborers. And I was an absolute non-asset because I didn't speak any Spanish. (laughs) So all the people who were hiring day laborers were like, oh, you think it's clever that you speak English? Means nothing to us. You can't talk to the foreman. So I was not getting hired on jobs there. So I I started working um, like bartending and cleaning sheets at the hostel that I was staying at. (laughs) And I stayed in Miami for two weeks. And I... um, I mean, there's so much to that trip. I was 19 years old, so I went to a Trappist monastery. I don't know. Have you ever heard of a Trappist monastery? Uh, yeah, the monks. They, well, I know that when they make beer they make in Belgium. Sausage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what, there's one here in America? So there's one in America, and it actually is was home to probably the most famous Trappist monk ever to live, this guy Thomas Merton. Oh, okay. I've so, heard that name. Yeah, so the Trappist monks are... Um, Where is this? It's in Kentucky. Okay. And it's in bourbon country. And sure. it's it's really fascinating. So one of the things is they make they're they're famous for making sausage and beer. Here in the United States it's sausage and cheese. Um I don't know that they're in beer here, but in Belgium as you say. Yeah. <laughs> so um but but in Kentucky the other thing is they don't talk. Oh. So they host retreats for you and you can go but but you're there on a non talking retreat. You don't talk while you're there at and all. And you had to work though? I didn't have to work. So it was a pretty interesting story. Um, I was hitchhiking. And hitchhiking in Kentucky is... is like, it was in 1999. Um, and this guy jerks over to the side of the road. And I am, um, you know, for better or worse, I am literally like... You know, I, I come from a very liberal Pacific Northwest yeah. family, and you know, my dad was a psychologist, and all this like almost insufferable stuff. Of, a, of, hey, an attractive nineteen-year-old boy, right? American, hop in my truck. Hey, and y'all! I remember. Oh, it was. I mean, you're kind of nailing it right on the head. I mean, he had a. He had. They've made movies of this. I, the thing. Deliverance I, was one of them. Exactly. <laughs> the thing I always say is like he had a. I had seen gun racks, of course. Like the uh, sure the, the Oregon's the American West, and I had seen gun racks with one shotgun in them. That's fine. But when you have the triple gun rack and there's th- there's a gun in each one, that was newish to me. Uh, and he jerks over. He goes put your bag in the back and get in. And it was really fascinating. And, and <laughs> he goes, uh, so where are you going? And I was going, I, I'm going to this, this monastery. I'm doing this silent retreat. Now, as you know, when you're on the road, there is no time on earth when you feel like you are more clear about the world, about what you want to present in the world, whatever. It's like the end of a Molly trip. You're like, oh, all the world is in me. <laughs> I am in all the world. And now add to that, I was 19. So I definitely thought I had everything figured out. Oh, sure. So you he everything. Like jerks the car over and he goes, get in. He goes, what's your name, son? I was like, Steve. He goes, Steve, I have always wondered about guys like you. Now, what is it that makes you think you just wander around Kentucky's back roads? And I was like, oh, this shit is going sideways <laughs> right now. This is what it's like when something goes sideways. What makes you think you can wander around Kentucky's back roads just sticking with your thumb out? And, of course, unable to help myself, which is something uh, you'll learn about me. I'm, <laughs> I am just so good at being my own worst yeah, enemy. Filter. Yeah. Sure. And I said, uh, well, you know, I just feel like, you know, the universe really has this longing for me to be <laughs> oh, man. longing for me to be happy. And I just want to explore the world and, and, you know, see every part of it and know it. And I give him like this speech that sounds like the come down of an acid trip. And he just kind of nods. He's like, all right. Uh, <laughs> we keep driving 
And he drove me. I was so far away from this isolated retreat center in Kentucky. He drive, drove me 70 miles. Not a ton of talking, but he drove me 70 miles way out of his way to take me there. Took me to the front door, opened up his wallet, and goes, uh, I'm going to give you I'm gonna give you what I have. That's $18. It's every penny I have on me. And I said, uh, but... And he's like, I see you need it. <laughs> You're taking that money. And then one day you give someone $18 back. And I was like, all right, all right. So I took it. And I walked in and they said, okay, you're staying for a week. There's this donation envelope box right here. And I put the $18 in and I, I stayed and I, I lived in silence for a week with the monks. Wow. And he never, <laughs> he never commented on your, uh, on your story. Like he never said, well, that's what sounds a little... He, I, mean, I think he was fascinated. I, I think in the end, he was like fascinated at the idea of someone going out and feeling, you know, there's a fine balance and, and we're looking at it now. And I say this as a, as a white man is like, there's this fine balance between entitlement, the world owes me something, and um, this other thing of like, the world wants me to be happy. And I think... I think at that time, you know, he admired the the world wants me to be happy attitude of a of a insatiable for life 19-year-old versus now I think we might look at it through the prism and be like that entitled asshole just bounding around the world expecting everything to work out and maybe it still does for a you know straight white 19-year-old dude but there are other people we've seen in the travel space who don't always get those benefits of the doubt or or couldn't feel safe in 1999 hitchhiking through rural Kentucky. Right, right. Um so so yeah. Well, when did the when did the world travel start and when did uh, you decide that that was going to be like a major part of your life? I mean, so it was a very similar rhythm um the the dropping out of school trip, I ended up writing for the school paper. They, um, back home, back back at the university I had dropped out of. Which one was it? In Oregon? No, it was the University of San Diego, and they thought it was kind of oh, okay. novel to have someone who had just dropped out write for the paper. So I, I did it. <laughs> they let you back? Yeah, I did a travel log as I as I traveled, and and that really gave like a backbone to some of my wanderings. Um, a couple years later, I had saved up a little bit of money, and um, I had I kind of bounded around and lived in Detroit, lived in New York. Uh, lived in the Caribbean and then ended up in Orange County in Los in Laguna Beach, and I was living in a library at a preschool. And wait, living in a library? Yeah, like their library, and I I had a little cot in there, and I taught at the preschool. <laughs> and then every morning I wake up, I'd start to hear like the the cleaning staff cleaning the rooms. I'd wake up, <laughs> dive in the shower, and then and then teach kids all day. Wow. Um. So I was doing that. And one of the mothers of one of the students ran a magazine, a pretty prominent magazine, Glossy Magazine. And she had just had her roving vagabond writer sell a book and a movie deal to Will Ferrell. And she was like, now we need the next person. (laughs) And I was like, okay, I want to be that next person. I had all my money saved up. I was planning a big trip. And so I did a a 14-month column for her and traveled the world. 14 months? Yeah. Okay, was it more... Because I know you you spent a lot of time uh, just read briefly on your bio and stuff sure. that you had you had spent a lot of time in Asia. Was Asia more the key? Because your money goes longer. Yeah, I mean, mostly East Africa and oh, Asia. Wow, okay. East Africa, Australia, and Asia were and East Asia were the the three big ones. Um, I'm one thing that is is really particular to me as a travel and I a traveler and I like to do is figure out the right mode of transport for a certain place. 
So there's this there's this movement in travel that's been going on for 20 years of like, oh, I'm gonna motor bike through X country and I'm gonna bicycle ride through X country and and sometimes it's cool. I, sometimes I really do think it's cool and sometimes it feels like people are layering, you know, their expectations on a place. I'm going to bicycle ride through X country. And then you see one of them at a hostel and they're like, yeah, this is miserable. I yeah. popped 15 <laughs> tires. And you're like, well, but did you check like the road condition? Right. Like, did you know that they weren't really developed roads or whatever? Those so, are like the people who come to America and they and they go, I'm going to rent a Mustang. Right. And it's going to be a convertible and I'm going to drive through the dead like Steve McQueen. Yeah. And, you're you like, know. but you came to Minnesota yeah, in November. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it was a little bit like that, but I like to figure it out on the ground. So I bought myself... Uh, you know, a big, burly, um, horribly maintained Nissan Patrol in Uganda. And I, I drove myself on safari for months and months. And, and that was maybe the coolest experience of my life. It was so cool to just get to see people and, and not be in the tourist network because I didn't have a guide. And yet I'm driving through, you know, Ngorogoro National Park or Masai Mara National Park for days and days. So you get to know the guides and you stay at the guide canteen and you eat at the guide canteen, you know, you eat yeah. there. And it was super cool. I just came back from, I was in Uganda and Rwanda this summer doing the um, gorilla trek. Oh, it was amazing. Incredible. It was, really, right? it was really amazing. Yeah. That was my biggest splurge in Uganda. Yeah. And, and really special. Absolutely. I mean, I had been. It was on my list for a long time, and then okay. uh, yeah, just I had to go. The opportunity and came did up. Did you do it in in Uganda or Rwanda? Uganda, okay, because uh, the permits were about half the price uh, yeah. as Rwanda. Yeah. Um. So we did two days in Uganda. So we got to do two different families. I think the this is my personal opinion. It's going to be controversial. Oh, I think exclusive the, travel I, tales exclusive. I think the Uganda. I've sent a bunch of writers to Rwanda, and they've brought back photos. And I've done the Uganda thing myself. I think the the gorillas in Uganda are more beautiful. Really? I think so. The families <laughs> go when I'm done. It's all that inbreeding. Go compare. I think that they're. I think that they're prettier. Now I got to look this up with my photos. If someone was to... asking me, I would recommend them. I think the the Rwandan ones have like yeah. a heavier jawline. Interesting. Aesthetically, if you're if you want a good photo, I swear. Yeah. Oh, okay. I love, I gotta go look that up. I loved the experience in Uganda. Rwanda it. was like really surprising to me. I mean, that was like a pleasant yeah. of how clean it was and how it's rebound, rebounded from the, the genocide, which yeah. was only you know 25 years ago. It's on is, the Uprox travel hot list this it's year. It's crazy. Um, and they know it too. And the prices are starting to reflect it. But God bless them. You know, they, anybody can come back from that. I mean, it's incredible. And yeah. it's clean. Like they've banned plastic bags and no. things like that. It was, I was really impressed. Yeah, it's and, a really progressive... Capital, even the city was clean. Really progressive travel destination. Yeah, it's really And good. I think Central Africa... I've never met anyone who has spent time in Central Africa who has then gone like, that is... Who has not gone, that is one of my favorite places on earth. Right. You know, when people spend time there, there is a certain... It's literally, you feel it. You're in the belly button of the world. Like there's a this... this I mean, not even to get to out there but like there, there well, like is human a life force began. there yeah <laughs> like there's a force that you recognize especially because it's dense jungle right it's not dry there and so you just feel this like god this is life yeah like, this yeah. is literally what give me give me uh like one particular memory that stands out from driving the, a nissan petrol around I patrol mean, patrol so many petrol um, is what you put in it yeah <laughs> patrol. Uh, there was uh i mean i i guess any of, dangerous parts? Or tons like, of dangerous parts. I okay. mean, you know, got a got a cobra out of my tent. 
because um, I was sleeping inside the national park. Woke up one day in my tent, had heard lions all through the night, and woke up in my tent and um, walked the river. There was a little creek, and I didn't. I hadn't understood how how out there I was. I was doing a border crossing that you have to have certain permits for between Kenya and Tanzania. I went through that one. And um, I didn't realize how I had camped on really exposed land. And then I saw a wildebeest like 15 feet from my tent, like pulled open and ravaged and and the stomach eaten out of it. And I was like, oh, that kill I heard last night, it was here. It was like, it was 15 feet from us. So it was a good experience though. It was it was just magical. We what, Probably the best thing, truthfully, was that I bought a really shitty car. And because of that, the car kept breaking down. And because of that, I got to connect with really interesting communities of people. So I remember there was one night in the Maasai Mara where the um, one of the bearings of the of the front wheel had stripped. And I was with Maasai warriors with the full regalia on. And we were using um, files, fine metal files, to re-thread the bearings so that I could drive <laughs> on. And we're doing this all through the night. And then the next, you know, I sleep there. And then the next morning, I, um, because I like basketball, that's my sport, you know, I tack one of my old tires up to a tree and we play basketball. I had a, I had a soccer ball in my car. We play basketball together. <laughs> and it like those experiences, which are always, for me as a traveler and a travel writer, what I'm trying to push people towards, which is get off the tourist track, Find a way to get involved in populations of people and, you know, you know, recognize the fact that you're a very grateful interloper and then spend time how people spend time. There's something interesting about like a car because I've talked to so many people with like car. Pro- I've had car problems in other countries. Sure. But there's something uniting about that. Even if you don't know the language, some guy will come out of his head. Everybody knows a guy who's good with cars. And, right, he'll come right. out, and then all of a sudden a group of guys will come around and they're just, you know, now they're not even looking at you. They're focused on the yeah. problem. There's a problem is that, you, you, that we all were united in we're trying to fix take this a thing. Look. And guys just want to fix stuff. It's like, okay, we can take care of you yeah, somehow. Everyone's like looking in yeah. as if there's something that one person. Yeah, one guy's notice. got an like, idea, oh, and, and, the, and then they argue with him. Nah, this that's not going to work. Was unplugged. Yeah, right. Um, well, how long did that trip last? Like in the car? So that was about thirteen. Oh, the car was about four months. Um, four months. Yeah, wow. and and you know, I did a different thing in in different places. In you know, Cambodia, I got a bike. In uh, Vietnam, motorbike. No, a bicycle. Oh, bicycle. Uh, yeah. In Vietnam, I took a Vietnamese zampan, which is a it's a long it's like like, canoe or something? the length of a, a couch essentially long boat and you row it standing up like this oh yeah okay. and it's the reason it's long is to stretch across the whirlpools in that part of the river um, but it's typically a canal boat that elderly women will use to ferry people for a penny across the different sides of the canal and I bought one I, again I'm really good at at using my terrible language skills to buy the shittiest one possible. <laughs> And my goal so you was, don't haggle well or you do haggle well? I don't haggle well. <laughs> um, and my goal was, well, this haggling was fantastic because I was using a translator. And I oh, was an okay. elderly woman. And now this is how she makes her livelihood. So she does have to get the right price for it. And she said a great thing. She said, um, you know, the boat was pretty trashed. And there's this stand-up rowing that the, the women do. It's really fascinating. Their arms are crossing like this. And I, I said, you know, I want to buy the boat. And she was like, you don't want to buy this boat. Like she was saying through the translator, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> and I had been told that it was a terrible idea since having the idea in Thailand. And, and 
Um, okay, in terms of money, what's the difference between buying a good one and buying the crappy knows, one? Right? The crappy one like, you're but buying. I just had this probably fantasy. a dollar. Yeah, maybe <laughs> I had this fantasy. I was going to huck fin it. Oh, and okay. I she said um, it's a hundred dollars for the boat. And I, U.S. I said hundred dollars U.S. I said to the translator, I was like. It, it can't be worth that. Like this, you know, <laughs> see if you can get her down to 75, just 75. And the translator says something and, say, and says something back and they both start laughing. And she looks to me, she goes, she says, it's a stupid idea. You're going to die. And anyone who wants to die has a hundred dollars to spend as quickly as they have 75. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, you and can't I argue her, with that logic. Yeah, I gave her the hundred bucks, and then I took the boat. And I thought I was going to huck Finn down the Mekong Delta for days and days, but the Mekong Delta is so big that it's tidal. And so the second I started going down, it actually sucked me up, and I started going the other way. I had no idea. I hadn't planned for this at all, <laughs> and I ended up fighting the river my whole trip, which led to something really cool. Which was again, I went back to my travel roots, hitchhiking, and I decided to hitchhike. And I hitchhiked by waving at people. It was very foreign for them to see a tall white dude at the helm of a zampan, which is typically for elderly women. Um, <laughs> and they saw me and I would wave to them and I would, they will not slow down for you. But if I could throw them my anchor cable and they could catch it, then they would tow me as far as they were going. And I hitchhiked all the way down the Mekong Delta in this little boat for days <laughs> oh, and days. And it never leaked or... Uh, oh, it leaked horribly. Okay. It was the... the I, you know, the, the article I wrote about that story was the first thing I ever got anthologized in a book. It was a travel humor book. And the joke that I still look back on that I was proud of how it was structured, and I'm sure I'll butcher it now, but is like um, I looked at the boat when buying the boat. I should have looked at how worn out the bailing pan of the boat was because that bailing pan was wrecked and that told me everything I needed to know. The boat was, I mean, it was leaking constantly. In fact, one day it actually fully sunk oh my overnight God. and I, I woke up, I was like, my boat was stolen and the rope was still there and I traced it. And I was like, oh, I got it. This boat's a piece Does of the shit. Mekong have any, uh, I've been to Vietnam and, and uh, around that area, but I mean, does the Mekong have any kind of... Um, Crocodiles or anything like that? Anything that could kill you in there? Buffalo, Snakes, water probably. buffalo. Oh, water buffalo. Water buffalo could kill you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah. I just loved that experience. I didn't speak English for seven days. There was I, I was in deeply rural areas. Um, people wanted people spoke English. They said the word hello, and so people would want to really say hello, and they were really interested. And because I was slow at the rowing. If I if I went down like an offshoot canal, I remember once this woman, this elderly woman, yelling "Hello, hello!" and and she had learned that you know probably during the Vietnam War, like this is that area, and she she was like "Hello, hello," and just walking by me, and I remember thinking like I could see it was anticlimactic for both of us. She wanted me to be faster and be like "Hello" and also "Goodbye." <laughs> You're this passing curio, but I was going so slow. That she was just kind of like, hello. And then she like took a step and I, I rode and, and she was still by me. And so she stayed hello with again. me for about an hour just like <laughs> waving. Um, but it was a fantastic trip. I ate everything they put in front of me. The Mekong rice is the best in the world. Um, I ate clay, I love the food clay pot there. river rat, which uh, river was rat. fantastic. Yeah. Okay. How big um, are those? They're big. They're big swampy rats with tender meat. Everything in the Mekong has a sweetness. I've studied Vietnamese cooking since then, and mm -hmm. you know they also use like they use a fair bit of sugar in some of their dishes. Sure. But, oh, 
that Mekong food is fantastic. Okay. So uh, if you were going to, let's, well, let's go back to Africa just for a second. Sure. If there is one uh, area that you think, because you do have a hot list and, you know, where's yeah. the travel this year. Uh, is there a part of Africa that you think is underserved, other than Rwanda and Uganda? Do you think there's another part that's... So I do. And, and to clarify, I mean, there's my personal list of where, if someone comes up to me, they go, you've been travel writing for a long ass time. <laughs> where should I go? Versus like the hot list, which is very much this thing of here's what's the most potent and popping right now. Okay. And we gave people, you know, every single thing that we put on this list of 150 items, you know, from travel to festivals, whatever, everything overhanging that is why now? Why in 2020? Whether it's something connected to being an election year or something connected to the fact that our planet is burning or whatever. Right. But for me personally, my personal one-person hot list in Africa, if anyone ever came up to me and said, hey, I have money to spend, I'm going to go someplace, I would say go to Madagascar before it, someone ruins that experience for travelers, which is inevitably going to happen because it is one of the greatest resources on this planet of, of natural beauty, of wildlife, of perfect beaches, of untapped surf breaks, of rivers that have not had a first descent yet. Uh, I mean, wow. just... Literally, if you sawed California off, it's the size of California. You sawed California off the United States and you let it go completely tropical and jungle. And it had a crazy pirate history. And it had, it grew 99% of the world's vanilla. And it had its own cocktails and its own drugs and its own parties <laughs> and the most beautiful people on the planet. And all of this stuff, that's what it is. It's this Afro-Asiatic subcontinent that is really, truly magical. And I, you know, it's tricky to be a travel writer and ever over-glorify something as magical. And I think that that's, that can be very colonialist. It can come off as very... Um, you know, kind of Euro gazy, you know, Western gazy, but with Madagascar, I can't help myself. It's just, a, it's, <laughs> it is a beautiful, magical place, uh, and not easy to get to. I mean, not that's probably why it's you know been off the radar for a, a lot of ways. I mean, you have to fly a couple different, yeah, at least to you'd at least to South Africa, probably. Nairobi or, or South yeah. Africa, Johannesburg. Yeah. Wow, how long were you there? Madagascar, I did for about a month. Um, and, and that was also hitchhiking. That was in that case, it was hitchhiking with the, um, ships that would travel up the East coast of the country. Oh, they would go from port to port and you could, you learned that you could hitchhike with them and pay them nothing or, you know, buy, buy a round of drinks for the guys (laughs) and hop on these cargo ships. Yeah. When was this? When, when were you there? So this was 2007, 2006, 2007. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah, it was a good trip, and Madagascar is—I mean, you know—I've sent writers there since then, and my my sister um, has lived in East Africa for most of the past twenty years, and so I, I know on good authority that it is still has every bit of the magic that you know, <laughs> right? That it had when I was there. There's always this thing in travelers that's like. I was talking about this with Justin Walter, who I think came on your show also. Yeah, yeah, Justin. We've had uh, a couple of people that contribute to you. Uh, Kinga Phillips oh, was here last another year. Another amazing and, uh, person. Justin has uh, come on. Justin is the one who gave me your number. So cool. And uh, yeah, yeah, probably a number of people that you know. So I know that he went to Bali, and his his takeaway from Bali was like, "Well, you should have been here, you know, fifteen years ago." Of course, I went to Bali fifteen years ago. And, and you Bali, said you should have been here. Like that's what they all said. Like. That's what everyone told you. And and I've never had that. You know, I have a very um, overwhelming ability, and it gets me into trouble sometimes. But 
I do see the world through fresh eyes. That's why I, you know, a lot of the people who I came up with, I came up at the very end of the generation of travelers and travel writers who were like, oh, we can monetize this thing. And that's never how I came at it, which I, I probably should have. I would have been better monetized right now in my life. Yeah, you I'm, and me both. Yeah, right? <laughs> but, but I came at it as someone who really loved travel and really loved writing. And those were the skills I worked on without thinking like, how do I break this open? And yeah, I've me got, too. I've got, yeah. I come from a journal. Well, I started out and you know, I was a, a newspaper writer. Yeah, so out of you college. know, I mean, right? Yeah, I mean, and still, I tend to write still as if I'm writing for a paper, which is too long for the internet. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. But it's just we, like, had... I got to edit this. And people are like, Don't, can't you cut this down to like, you know, four <laughs> paragraphs? Okay. Well, I could, but I didn't know that's what you, just naturally, I think, to write sure like a feature article or like a big thing. I don't know. But had we had the sense to, to say like, oh, we're just going to start our own blogs in 2005. Yeah. You know. That that's a different career course, and there, it's one that I sometimes regret. With that said, I, I spent a lot of time really seeing the world, and I pride myself on that skill. And so for me, I don't get stuck in that place very often of like, should have been here last year. Well, I, isn't that like kind of the uh, uh, risk of, of having a, like a hot list or something like that and, and hipping people to these places that are unspoiled, and you run the risk of spoiling them? Yeah. I mean, I, I've... You know, Reading on the, your uh, your latest list for 2020, a lot of them said, you know, get here before right. the crowds do. Yeah. But in a way, you're helping bring the crowds. Yeah. No. <laughs> so, isn't that the dichotomy of yeah, what you're doing? Yeah, and I think, I think that, like, it, you know, I see you and, and we have met, you know, and I, I see this, like... Um, you know, the joy and forgiving podcast host in your face, right? <laughs> like the genuine interest. But I also think that that's an issue that if someone wanted to, like they could really skewer me on and ask some tough questions about. I do have a philosophy on it because I've, I've wrestled with that quite a bit and have taken a lot of time to kind of figure out where I stand with it. And a lot of it is, um, <laughs> I mean, part of it comes down to my own political and economic theories. Um, and the fact that, you know, the fact that I'm anti-corporatist or whatever. And, and so the problems I see in the world are not driven by people moving around the planet. But I think the other thing is, like, we live in a planet with, uh, you know, nine and a half billion people. And we have a carrying capacity of six billion. Is it we, nine and a half now? I thought it, we were around about seven and a half billion. Okay, seven and a half. Seven and a half, right? Yeah. But literally, so, when I was born... It's like it was like four yeah. and a half, yeah. you know, and it's almost doubled in my lifetime. Exactly, and you know, I think I had those numbers reversed. You know, I think the carrying capacity is nine and a half, and we have seven and a half. Yeah. Um. So, so thank you for that. But, but point being, we got a lot of people, and they're going to move around this planet. And as much as I would not love for someone to come up to me at a beach and go like, "Hey, you ruined this," or I, my experience was toxic because you publicized it. There's also a part of me that's like, I also don't begrudge the person who owns the hostel at that beach wanting to be fully occupied. And I also don't, and, and it's a thing that we're all going to have to wrestle with and manage. But as we wrestle with and manage it, we have to have hanging over the top of all of it. That for me, I'm a, I am a European American. My father is a, you know, was from Italy, European American living on stolen land. Um, I'm from stolen land up in Oregon. I live on stolen land in Southern California. 
thrice stolen land because it was stolen sure. from indigenous people and, and then, then the from Spanish Mexico. Took it and then, right, and then right, Mexico, right. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think there is this like bigger context that has to hang over it. With that said, there are times where I have been very hesitant. You know, we, we did an islands list at Uproxx a couple years ago and I always knew the island I was going to put on the top of the list. It's, it is an island in Thailand and no one knows about it. And it was the island that the the book The Beach was based on, which became oh, yeah. the movie The Beach. And if they would open the book The Beach, they could probably figure out which island it was. And, and people I've, have. Uh, yeah. And I've told 20 people about this island. It's not the, where the beach was shot. Okay. It's because they that shut one. that one down. They shut that one down. It's not where the beach was shot. It's what the, the book The Beach was about. Okay. I've told probably 20, 20 30 people. I'll tell you off air if you want about okay. this island. Um, and... And of the people, one have gone. And they said it was the most amazing thing. And the thing that that taught me was that most travelers are not all that intrepid. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a thing where it's like I want to give people as much insight as I have to offer about the world. And I don't want to spoil things. But at the same time, the real travelers are always going to be pushing further and, and trying to experience more. And I'm neither going to hurt nor hinder that. You right. Know? Well, there's people that casually travel, and there's people like you who will, you know, rent a, <laughs> a Nissan and for sure. months in in East Africa. I mean, that's a different kind of traveler. Yeah. But I mean, there's also the the thing I wrestle with personally. It's just like I try to, especially as a diver, you know, and stuff. Yeah. And I've seen what the you know been diving for 30 years, and I see what's happened to the reefs and everything around the world, and and. But on the flip side, I've also, you know, I work on cruise ships sometimes, which have a horrible environmental record. Yeah, the worst. And, uh, and flying, you know, which is bad for the planet as well. As much yeah. as I, so I'm on that fence of, you know, as much as I, I love travel and like to promote it, there is a thing where, you know, flying around everywhere. So, I mean, they do mention carbon footprints on up, up rocks and stuff. And how do you wrestle with that? You know, so I, I talk about it in my editor's letter to the hot list. I talk about the carbon issue. And I think, you know, we had this giant kickoff call. We had 50 of the best travel writers in the world. It was the most diverse uh, travel hot list that I have ever seen. And I, am, I live in the ecosystem of this industry. It was the youngest travel hot list. We had really talented writers. And I said, listen, guys, if we're brave what we would do is actually in the eco section we would say that all everyone who writes travel for uprocks this year is going to give themselves a carbon cap and that's it that's what that's what bravery would look like about this issue travelers and travel writers it would look like that for leonardo dicaprio and it would look like that for al gore you know one of the worst things that al gore ever did for the green movement was that when he got criticized for his incredible massive carbon footprint at his mansion after inconvenient truth came out in 2007 he he gave a culturally relativist explanation of that his wife tipper gore said Everyone has different needs, and everyone's going to have a different footprint because of that. And I don't know that that logic holds up. I don't know that the Leonardo DiCaprio taking jets around the world while, while also telling us you know, or poor people not to eat fish, right? Yeah. Like, don't eat fish, but, but people want protein. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, well, don't eat fish that was, that was fished you know, cheaply in the Bay of Thailand in this certain way because it's almost slave labor conditions. Yeah, but that's what Trader Joe's sells. 
it's tricky. It's a very tricky moral high ground to ever stand on for very long. Sure. The idea of ecology. There was a guest on this show who actually flew the jet that he flew. He's a private jet pilot. Sure. And uh, Al Gore was one of the guys he flew around to give a speech on global warming somewhere in uh, you know in the third world. Right. And Al Gore <laughs> says like there's this reason I have to do it. I'm giving this speech and I also I, I and, and there's points on both sides. I, get, I don't even you know. Can, you I, can yeah. pick apart everything. Yes, know. but I would love to be in a room with Al Gore and and make my points. Sure. Cuz here's the thing, like one of the the bullshittiest things in all of the green movement. And I had a, a really prolonged gig where I was writing about the green mo- movement for from the the year the inconvenient truth came out. An eager magazine editor said, do you want to write about ecology? And I said, yes. And she said, okay, you have an ecology column now. And I wrote about ecology every month for seven years straight. And I found one thing over and over. There were a lot of people in the ecology movement who said, you'd say like, what are you doing? Tell me what you're doing. And they'd say, well, you know, bringing exposure to these issues. And I was like, yo. (laughs) Inconvenient Truth was a documentary that did like 200 million bucks at the box office. Are you bringing more exposure than that? Because otherwise, like, get off the fucking mic, right? Like, you're not yeah, yeah. doing anything original in your exposure bringing. So let that, like, I don't, I, you can't fundraise against that. Al Gore, you know, I'm sorry if you're the person. You say, I'm the person, then you have to be better. Well, what do you do personally when you're traveling? I mean, is it more about supporting local? businesses when you can or what like what's yeah, your what's it's your also, thing it is for me traveling less now it's less. great because i get or slower or less 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 like i fly less per year now i'm doing I, it too i think and i try to maximize if i'm gonna and maximizing going yeah, on longer trips longer trips and then yeah and, and take local transportation when i can i was yeah, pretty good jetting every pretty early on when i when i started getting a lot of opportunities like 2006 my personal policy for myself now, I was a single young person with no debt, <laughs> no kids. But my, my personal policy for myself was I will not leave the United States for less than a month. I want to see things. And I don't want to be jet setting all over the place. And so I would only still, still only take four, you know, maybe three international flights a year, which is a lot and exceeds what they estimate one person's carbon output should be. But it is not the 25 flights that a lot of the travel writers I know do. Even now, plus it right? burns you out. I mean, it- right? But I would, I would, you know, then I would travel around those countries for months and months. Israel tour, and that's why that's part of why I believe in press trips. Israel tourism brought me over, and I said, you know, this is the first press trip I was on, 2006, and I said, okay, I'd love to come over, but please know I'm also going to be spending time in in Palestine. I want to see that too. And I spent, you know, two weeks in Israel, and I spent three weeks in Palestine, and I volunteered at a school for a blind there. And I, I you know, traveled around Pal- the Palestinian territories, and I traveled around Israel, and then I finally flew back. You know, I and to- I was able to get seven or eight stories out of that. Right. I went to Israel once, um, but I didn't do Palestine. Mm. So, you know, I saw the, the fenced-in, you know, cities. Sure. <laughs> um, what was your takeaway from that, just briefly, like, what do you, you know, what did you think going in, and how did it change your perception? Change my perceptions, because like I as bet. Americans, you know, we hear about Israel our whole lives, right? And you know, half my family's Jewish too, so I hear about that. Sure. And but it was eye opening, you know. For some reason, I was naive and thinking, and I'm not particularly religious, 
But uh, you think everybody's on the same page there. It's right. like, no, it's the same kind of... There's conservatives, there's liberals, there's atheists, there's yeah. Christians, there's, you know, every, everybody. There's uh, Muslims, there's... Absolutely <laughs> booming young movement of yeah. pro-Palestinian Israelis. Yeah. You know, that is really a thing right now. And they're not all, you know, third wave hippies. Like, they're, they're just young, progressive Israelis who want Palestinian liberation. Uh, my here i'll tell you my two stories because because i think like speculating on this is is i'm sure neither what you want nor like the thing that i want to do or or no. be fired on social media no, i'm just wondering how, how it no, no but i'll tell change you your I'll, perception I'll tell of the you place. Two stories that changed my perception so um one of them they they mostly all come from working at a school for the blind inside of the west bank and the first one is that at this at this school for the blind um they took me to the most concentrated um, the the most concentrated area of humans on the planet Earth, which is a project house, tenement house in Palestine, in the West Bank, and it's so high in such a small area and so many people living in each apartment that it's the most concentrated square feet in the planet Earth. And that place had an award-winning basketball team. And I like basketball. I've already <laughs> mentioned that a few times. I was like, I'd love to to meet those guys. And out comes this guy. He's seven feet two. He's he's a well-known inter- international player. He played for Palestine for years. Um, and he's like, why don't you come to practice tonight? <laughs> oh. They practiced so hard um, that I vomited twice. And I was in good. <laughs> I was 26 years old. I was in good shape. And I was good at basketball. And I scored one basket in a three-hour scrimmage. <laughs> they ran me so hard before the practice that I vomited twice. I have, these people were made out of stone. <laughs> they were tough folks. And we afterwards we go to get um you know, we go to get like a, a snack and a, a beer and we were talking and I said, Well, you know, that gym it was it was like built into a cafeteria. And I said, um, why uh you know, how did that all come about? They go, Well, we needed a solution. Oh, you know, we're this team, we travel the world. But we had been stopped by the Israeli forces because we we used to practice outside on the outside courts, and they thought we were training an army. And they said, optically, we can't. We no more playing outside, the way we train. And I started I started to, to get that a little bit that feeling of of not being able to control something as simple as recreation. Um, and then I was on a bus, and um, there was a guy. This is again crossing through if you crossed through um you know from bethlehem into you know essentially you know through jerusalem from the west bank into ramallah on the other side of the west bank right as the crow flies it would take you 45 minutes but since you're driving around the israeli part of the territory it can take a couple hours and then with all the the checkpoints yeah yeah so we were at a checkpoint and there was this guy and i remember he um we got stopped for a long time, and he started slapping his legs. We were stopped at this checkpoint. We were stopped for 45 minutes. He started slapping his legs, and he was next to me on the bus. I said, what's going on? And he goes, I just feel so bottled up. This guy was a banker. I remember, like, I was like, what do you tell your work? Like, now you're going to be three hours late for work. We've been stopped for so long. He goes, they, they, you don't tell them anything. They know it. 
they know that I came in late because I was stopped at a checkpoint. And he was like, I just feel so bottled up. And this wasn't a guy who was going to be a revolutionary. He wasn't even going to, you know, throw rocks at the wall. But it was three days before Ramallah was invaded by Israeli troops in 2007. And he felt bottled up. And I, I do feel like there's a tricky thing, you know, I, and it's, I, I loved my time in Israel and I was respect, deeply respected there. I love my time in Palestine. And I think people on this earth need space to be. And I think that they need to control their own borders and be able to say like, this is, you know, we can, we can have shipments in whenever we want. And I, I think that having a little island of a country inside another country, you know, that doesn't allow for that is, is, tricky um but but ultimately you know i came away with so much love and respect for both of those places for all their people i've never like i say i was in ramallah three days before it was invaded i have never felt so safe as a traveler in my life what about um if you run into any other places where the civil unrest have you gone through any run-ins with cops or soldiers in yeah. parts of the world yeah i've 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 been around a little bit of civil unrest, although I do like I you know I was in I was in Thailand during one of the coups. Although the you know Thailand is such a peaceful environment that like even the coup is pretty peaceful. Or the ones that I was the one that I was there I was for. close to one too. I yeah, think. it was it I was, was a just very, came after one. And I think Thailand has has some sense of um, the fact that that tourism is such a big business there. It's like typically this this most recent one it looked like it really spilled out across society because one of them closed the airport yeah but typically like the one i was there for was was very much cordoned off you know or when i was in uganda you know i i went up to gulu and i was helping um my, my sister set me up with some volunteer work with ex-child soldiers up in gulu the joseph coney oh that God, war. yeah um, and I was helping out there, and I was I was doing sports clinics at war camps. And Uganda is the size of Oregon, where I come from. You would never have a civil war going on in Portland, and then people down in Eugene are like, "Everything's good." Right. That's how it was in Uganda. Like they, you know, people who come from countries who have a degree of civil unrest. There's two things that that you always see. Is one is like. There's never throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There could be civil unrest in one part of the country and people still go about their lives in another. And I think the other thing you see is that you never actually, you think you're going to be judged as an American and connected to our politics and connected to our foreign, foreign policy. And it's, it's quite the opposite. It's very easy for people in those places to say, I get that you are not a representative of your country, of its foreign policy, of all of these things. I I've think, gotten that over the world, you know? Yeah. It's like, we like, the common phrase is, we like Americans, we don't like yeah. America's politics, sure. or their policies. Because sure. our policies affect everyone. Yeah. They and, affect everyone. Yeah. And, you know, the, if there's one thing about Americans that, that I find in they don't like, is that so many of them, not so much, I mean, the hardcore traveler, but mm -hmm. the... Uh, the general public, they don't know anything about the world, and furthermore, many don't care. Right, and that's what drives them crazy. Which they wouldn't it wouldn't drive them crazy if our policies didn't affect the world. But we have an empire. But they do. But, but they do, and, and we don't care. And, and we don't care. That can be toxic. Yeah, and they don't realize that our vote and who we elect affects people all over the world. Sure. And that drives them nuts. Yeah, trade policy. Trade. I, I yeah. one of the more surreal travel experiences of my life. I was in uh, southern Tanzania, 
And I had driven my car down there just by looking at an old map. There was a very famous map. Um, it was called the, it was the Michelin map. Mm-hmm. And it was a map of Eastern Africa. They broke Africa up in quadrants. And this map was so cool and so specific. To lay it out, it would take you know your whole couch and, <laughs> right. and thing. It was one of those giant multi-sectional maps that folds up this thick. And it was so good and so specific that there was actually, this was very famous. Like there's blog articles about it. There was a tree on the map. And there was a section of uh, Kenya that you would be driving through and you'd be like, wow. That's that tree. tree is on the, on my map. <laughs> it's so surreal, but it's just but, because it's out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, out in the middle of nowhere. And they, take the a right at the big tree. Must have been like, we need to have some <laughs> landmarks somewhere. Yeah. We're going to put this giant baobab tree in them on the map. Um, but anyway, so I, I was just traveling East Africa by literally handheld map, and I ended up at the southern end of the country, and I was going to cross over into Mozambique. And um, I found out that the ferry that was crossing cars over was high-centered on a sandbank in the middle of the river. The river was also tidal. It's the River Ravuma that separates Mozambique and Tanzania. And so I couldn't go. So I was stuck in this small Tanzanian town for about a week. And and one day when I was there, I was sitting kind of out on the beach, and I had fallen asleep, and I heard something behind me. And um, I was on a little tiny island off off the main town. And I heard something behind me. I looked up, and someone was in my bag with my camera. And I started to run and I started chasing after him. And I caught him on the beach after about a mile. Um, I caught him. It was a crazy run and we were both just dying of, of exhaustion. And I caught him and I tackled him. And then the most bizarre series of events happened and it taught me so much about travel. So the first thing that happened was the people on this very tiny island, the, the local people, were really about to kill him because they couldn't be associated with theft because tourism was their business. And they, someone, I remember, he was laying on the ground, panting, tired, and I was just kind of sitting dazed from our run. And this mob of people came up eventually, and someone was about to kick him in the face. And I, it was going to be brutal. And I stuck my ankle out, and I took the kick in my ankle, and I said, what, stop, stop, stop this. And then we walked back to, to where the village was, and there were village elders, and, and we were trying to sort it all out. And they were like, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, nothing. I got my camera back, you know. And he and I, he, the guy and I started to talk, and he explained. He's like, here's how it works. There is an election in Tanzania this year. And because of the election, both sides are going to cheat the poor rural farmers. Tanzania can grow tons of cashews on its feral land. They don't have to do anything to do it. They could supply the whole world's cashew supplies. Uh, George Bush, George W. Bush was the president at this time. We had an embargo against Tanzania. So they didn't know exactly what to do with those cashews, but they had to figure that out. But they were growing tons of cashews on the side of the bushes, but they didn't want to pick them and roast them until the price for cashews had been set by the government. And neither of the candidates wanted to set a price because they knew they were going to screw the populace, but they wanted to be able to pretend like they weren't long enough for the election to happen. So every single man in this village was out of work because they were cashew harvesters. And he had tried to steal my camera, which represented a lot to him. And maybe on the black market, he could have gotten 100 bucks for it. And maybe it was actually worth 3000 And maybe that 3000 was the only 3000 I had. But 100 bucks is 100 bucks, 
And it really like that whole thing really shaped my mindset about travel and how constantly when you travel, you need to step out of your prism and say, I am, I need part of the joy of this, part of the beauty and the magic of this is going into someone else's mindset. That's that, what I try to do. That's great. How did it end though? I mean, did they, it what ended the villagers... with us sharing a sandwich. Um, and then they said, well, we, you know, he's a thief and he needs to be arrested. There, we took a small sailing dhow over to the mainland. And, um, you know, I was the only white person on the small sailing dhow. But everyone else was just fairy people and they didn't know what was going on. And he and I shared a sandwich and we talked about this stuff. And we got there and the police were waiting. And they said, you're the guy who just got robbed and, and tackled the robber. And I said, yeah. And they said, okay, so you just tell us which one of these people was the robber. And I said, I don't know. And then it was over. Um, so, yeah, that was how that went down. But, but you know, it did. It taught me so much because I think there's this part of your brain that's like, this camera, I had spent everything. I had saved for two years for this trip. And I had spent, you know, money that... that and I don't come from money and there was no hidden bank balance. And I was like, this camera is three grand to me and you just won't get that much for, you know, on the black market for it. And, and then I was like, Oh, but you'll get something and you're trying to eat. Yeah. And I, whether, and that's the important thing, sorry to, to turn this into a rant. The important thing that, that all of your listeners know from me is this. I get that you that that all of us might not feel rich in the context of America, but if you go to a developing nation, you still are rich. We I'm are. Sorry, you are. You, you are. You are. You are. And you you want to pretend you're not because it feels better as a traveler, and you feel like you're bootstrapping it. But in the giant global sense, the 19 year old Steve that I told you about, who was hitchhiking around the world, was fucking loaded. Oh, of course. In the giant global cosmic sense. The poorest people in America have a better standard of living than probably, I think they said about like 85% of the world population. And if you're middle class, you're in the upper 10%. Right. And if, if you have if a college degree and if you, yeah. yeah. If you have a car, yeah. you, you have more than, you know, it's, yeah, it, it puts it in perspective. And every time I tell people, it's like when I'm away, I feel wealthy. Yeah. When I'm here... You know, especially in, in in an expensive place like California, Santa Monica, sure. Yeah, it's uh, you f- you don't feel so. I feel um, that's one of the reasons, and I'm also more present when I travel. You know, I, you're never more in the moment than when you're there. And I always tell people, it's like when I'm away, I think of everything I have, right. And when I'm here, I think about everything I don't have. Oh, that's and well it's said. A, it's a wor- It's a, and I guess you know, travel has always brought that like kind of reset like a correction going you know what i'm fine right you know i have po- i have a working power grid yeah i have water coming out of the tap that doesn't give me dysentery you yes. know that kind of thing we have to like step back and that's how i become more minimalist i guess you know you know you know when you live out of a backpack for months yeah what do you need and how do i balance this spirit of gratitude you know for me it's it, i wrestle with a lot i'm an incredibly ambitious person um, and, and not necessarily ambitious for financial wealth, but ambitious for a hell of a lot of living. How do I wrestle my desire to live big and to have lived a big life and to have a large scale and scope to, to my existence on this planet um, with the, the ability to really slow down and go, wow, life is beautiful. 
you know, I'm going to this crazy hippie festival in Costa Rica this next week, and it was on the hot list, and it's called the Envision Festival, and it's, you know, I'm really interested in festival culture because I think on one hand there's this part of travelers that want to mock people who go around the world for festivals, but people have been acting weird at festivals since the beginning of human existence. Oh, sure. And so it's like they're always going to be doing that, and that is always where... <laughs> Where, you know, cultural, interesting cultural histories come up and interesting, you know, styles and, and clothing things and all these things. You know, we mock the person who, who's wearing something that's barely there, a little neon spandex thing at a festival. But literally, don't you think like the first person to ever wear a headdress at a festival was also mocked? Like, whoa, that's <laughs> yeah. big. That's really bright. Are you sure you want to wear that? I mean, we're, we're in a constant – we forget that so often. We're in a constant process of creating and evolving culture. But on the flip side, everybody's you – know, we complain about everybody coming more isolated and staying in and just yeah. looking at a screen. And then we mock the ones who – actually crave human contact and connect yeah right that's why i'm that's what this piece is about it's called seeking utopia at the end of the world and it's about why we i'm writing a piece about it and it's about why we are attracted to communes and cults and festivals and and places where we have a high degree of tribalism and communalism during times where it feels like the world is ending and also i think the fire festival gave it a lot of bad press and right. you know Right, and that, I, that I mean, bust. I do think you have to curate your own life, right? You have to go, you can't just look at someone's You Instagram. didn't go to that, did you? When, I didn't go to that. Okay. But I have a gripe about that, and it's not <laughs> the one everyone has. Okay. I think my gripe about that is this. At the Fire Festival, you had these influencers. I remember seeing their videos and things to come out of it. You had these influencers who were all there, and I remember thinking, you guys are some of the most beautiful, charming, straight-teethed motherfuckers <laughs> on this planet. You're all single, you're all sexy as shit, and there's a bunch of tents everywhere. If you can't make that fun without Ja Rule playing, <laughs> you are really fucked. You are really in a bad place. And the idea that they all acted like it was the worst day of their lives... Are you serious? Like, I've been to all those places. I've been to Eulathera. I've been to the Bahamas. Here's what you do. You go get a bottle of rum, and you hang out in your tent on the beach, with, and you swim in the ocean with all the other cool, attractive, beautiful people. And if you can't do that, which none of them seem to be able to figure out, then maybe you deserve to have a terrible festival experience. Like, what? Like, one DJ would have solved the problem for you motherfuckers? I think it was just a matter of being promised something. I know, and, I you know, know, it was expectations more than anything. God damn it. You're a stand-up comic. I took a construct and I, I pushed like it. it to its furthest I limit. I like it. No, I'm with now you. Now you're holding me to logic you know and that my whole bad. thing is falling apart. You know what? That was bad improv on my no, part. I should have yes-anded the shit out of that. that was a, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're so right. right. Fuck those yeah. guys. No, no, no. I'm teasing. I do. I, Smoke I, a joint and enjoy yourself in the beach. I mean, there at least that has to be some aspect of I'm it. I'm sure they I mean, did for, at some point. I don't know, man. There was there was <laughs> this guy. I forget his last name. I'm not going to call him out. Um, but he he. I remember he put on his video. He did, he said, "This has been the worst day of my life," and all I could think was like, "Hey, you've lived a really yeah, good pretty life. charmed life. Uh, like, you've yeah. lived a really good life. You're, the airport delays are the worst day of your life. You, <laughs> that's your just life youth. That's, that's just you know that's." That's a yeah. teenager going, you know, 
you know, when they break up, I'll never love anybody no, again. I love influencers, but those motherfuckers are 28. <laughs> they're not teenagers. They have to, there is some level of required sense. Emily Ratatowski or, or whatever yeah. her name is. I mean, she's like 32, right? She's not 12. No. You yeah. know, like these people, you know. Well, before we start wrapping this up, and you know, and, and let's talk about influencer culture and social media. Sure. And where do you think it's heading? And how do you think the good and the bad uh, that it's changed travel oh. in your mind? I like that. Where do you want it to go? I like that you're finishing with it too. (laughs) Um, Here is what I think, and I I I have spent a fair bit of time evolving my viewpoint on this. So as people on Twitter and and comment sections be like, you know, that's a terrible. That's he's so wrong. I I will just say I've I have been around the world. I've spent some time evolving my feelings on this. I came from a, a time in the travel writing world where the people who were writing for glossy magazines, which was driving the whole world of travel writing, were mostly, um, you know, first of all, they were mostly, I mean, almost exclusively white people, but mostly the same group of, of white people in the same age bracket and the same. And, and the reason why they were that same group of people was because you couldn't make money as a travel writer unless you were Pico Ayer or a few other yeah. people. And they so had something's paying the bill, right? They had some money hiding somewhere, and you'd get these same cliched, hackneyed stories. One of the things, and influencer culture is not perfect. It's obviously very slanted towards beautiful people, um, yeah. of which I am not particularly one. Like I couldn't make it as an influencer, <laughs> you know. Like, but it is more diverse. It is more um i i do see a level of progressivism and i see a level of groupthink learning happening that's really interesting and what i mean by that is um so here's someone who i would call out to f- to follow besides the people you've had on your show who i'm huge fans of um hey ciara is a great example she's a she's a young travel in- influencer she writes a lot about being a, a black woman traveling she posts a lot about being a black woman traveling she shows like justin does she shows some of the images behind the images of this is what it's really like in this crowded place but but as these people get famous and grow more and more they also are reaching out into different parts of the world and seeing different parts of the world and going, okay, maybe there's there's a world beyond Bali, or there's a world, or maybe there's an experience beyond. I, I always kind of smile at like these these Instagram boyfriends who, um, you know, who call themselves like storytellers on Instagram, <laughs> and like the story is like you take a lot of super cool photos of your girlfriend's butt like that is the that's the story you're Sold. telling right right and it's, it's not like i don't follow some of those people but let's but not, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. right here. right but that is the story you're you're over dramatizing right a but they're not bit. really getting the it's not about the travel as but, much as but as i've dealt with some of these people and here's another good one is jake and marie snow these this the most beautiful two humans i've probably ever witnessed <laughs> with eyes that just set on you if they started a cult i would join it today and um but they they are their process of traveling has evolved from hey we're beautiful people we're going to take cool sexy photos of ourselves to also like wow we are actually getting a sense of the world we're going to get involved this influencer couple who if we saw their photos right now would be so easy to criticize raised like seven thousand dollars for rhino rescue last year through their instagram i didn't raise seven thousand dollars for rhino rescue that shit is dope and important there's only one rhino left yeah there's literally 
literally one one white rhino left on this planet. We need to have money for rhino rescue. So so I do think that what we're seeing is as travel has become more egalitarian, more and more young people are hitting the road. Instagram made them feel more empowered to hit the road. Some of them are making that a more complex journey and going like, well, what else is there? Or what is my philosophy about travel? They're doing the thing I did at... at 19 when I hitchhiked and 26 when I traveled the sure. world. I'm not, just, I would have done it when I was, if, if it was around, if it sure. existed. And sure. they're just inverting it, right? They monetized it first and now they're figuring out what it actually means to travel the world and be a citizen of the world. Whereas I figured out what it means to be a citizen of the world and then I finally monetized it. <laughs> yeah. That's why they're all wealthier than me. <laughs> sure. Um, well, now you can get your, uh, your plugs in. I know you wrote a book or you have more than one book? Yeah, I, I write books for kids about pirates. Okay. Uh, I've okay. traveled the world, so I write. I have a series called The Danger Gang. I write books for kids about pirates. I write books for Nat Geo. Um, and then, yeah, I'm the editorial director of the life section at Uproxx, U-P-R-O-X-X dot com. And any life content you see there, from drinks to sex to drugs to travel, is I, I have my fingers on it. Um, and we have the travel hot list that is out that is kind of burning up the globe right now. <laughs> Shoot, unfortunately, metaphorically and literally. <laughs> yeah. um, so moderate your moderate how many places you travel to this year, people. But if you're looking for cool places that are really particularly relevant to this social geopolitical moment in time, take a look at our list. What about, do you have any personal uh, social media people can follow you, like on Instagram yeah, I'm, or something? I'm, I run the account at Uproxx Life, U-P-R-O-X-X. L-I-F-E, um, and at Steve Bram, S-T-E-V-E-B-R-A-M. Okay. Across all platforms, yeah. What are your next trips planned? So I'm going to this crazy hippie oh, yeah, festival sure. Saturday. I'm going. Okay. Um, and this will then, probably come out in March. So Okay. So I, by that time, I will have come home from this crazy hippie <laughs> festival. So how I'm, was it? <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really excited about it. It is truly weird, and I'm very excited about it. Um, and it's you know a it's Burning Man. I always said I want to go to Burning Man when they get water. Uh, <laughs> you haven't been? No. Have God, you been? I've, no, but I think that would be. It feels like it fit my personality. Yeah, right? I, I, I thought I just assumed you had been like a million times. Right. I always said I'll go when there's like a lake to cliff dive into. <laughs> Uh, really? Yeah, I like to cliff. Dive. I like to be wet. I don't I, like being dusty for seven days. Yeah, but you drove around Africa. You were in the you were in the Serengeti. I know. That's dusty. Yeah, there, uh, the, there were always rivers. I, I do a good job. I would swim with crocodiles. <laughs> that same river, I, I swam, and then they were like, "There's crocs in here." I'll, I'll do anything to get wet. I surf. I, you know, and so yeah. So this is Burning Man in the jungle on the ocean, with rivers and waterfalls wow, cutting okay. through. So it sounds pretty cool to me. So I was like, "That's the Burning Man." I <laughs> okay. Before, give me your uh, one great surf spot that you don't want to. It's okay that you uh, won't ruin for people. Like, you're not going to ruin it by giving it away. Oh, okay. So it's known enough. Yeah. Okay. You don't have to give me the hidden one that you're keeping from everybody. But your favorite surf spot that you recommend for people. I like that. I love this. (laughs) Okay. I love this show. Um, I mean... I would say that okay here this is I mean we one. all know Hawaii and Yeah like no I got a great one. Okay. You you should massive underutilized part of this planet Earth. I'm a huge Australia advocate. There is something in me that likes the American personality 
the Australia personality is like Americans, but cooler and more friendly by a degree of two. And I, I tried to always figure out why. And it's because they have one one hundredth of the people. Because There's no one there. We have thirty million. They have thirty it's million a, people, and we have three hundred million. We only have like twenty three, twenty five. And million. the countries are the same size. Yeah, strike it. Uh, no and eighty percent of them live on the East Coast. There's and no 80, one there. Yeah, and so even on the East Coast, here's where I'll tell you. Not Byron Bay, is it? Not. Uh, I love Byron. Sure. I go to Byron all the time. But now, now you've brought up a couple. Okay. Crescent Head, which is three hours south of Byron, is the next Byron. But if you can go to Australia during their summer, their proper summer. Our winter. Sure. Our winter. Go to, go to Sydney and drive south. And the southern beaches of New South Wales are surf break after surf break after surf break with very few people on them. Everyone wants you to be there. Great little cafes. Every cafe in all of Australia does banana bread. Sure. You surf all white. day. Yeah, you have a flat white. You have a banana bread. You surf all day. You eat a meat pie. Oh, So that's a good one. That's pretty good. That's great. All right. Um, And then if if you have readers here in Los Angeles where you live, if listeners, listeners, sorry, (laughs) Um, Uh, we do. If someone you got a local spot, I do. If someone came to me and they're like, "I'm a surfer," and I, I would say, "Look, plan with your work. Take a day off. Wake up early. Drive down to Trestles in Orange County. San Onofre. Trestles, though. Isn't that the same? No. So there's 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 about seven breaks in the span of a couple miles there. Okay. San Onofre is is my personal favorite break. Good call. <laughs> but Trestles is where the surf contests are, and it is a truly oh, right. perfect wave. It's where Kelly Slater like made his name in the on the continental United States, and it is a perfect wave. And if you get there right at nine thirty, the surf teams leave. All the kids have to go to school. The workers have finally gone to work. And you can have very few people at literally one of the best breaks on earth. That's good tip. That's a good, good tip. tip. Okay, before you leave, I'm going to ask the same question that I ask everybody and close Uh-oh. with. Um, how has all this travel uh, changed you as a person and how you look at people and the world? So good. <laughs> oh, I, I, here's my answer. I, I am the least jaded person who has been in the travel industry for 20 years that I have met. <laughs> I really love travel in a very deep and, and genuine way. I have all the 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 things that people say about travel that, that could sound like platitudes. I have had those platitudes as a young man. I have fought against those platitudes and deepened them as as I've grown up. And I have returned right back to those platitudes and say, I get all the context behind them now. I still think travel is a beautiful experience. I think it is the number one engine, the number one motor for creating compassion across society. You go out and you think you know things and you think you know people. And then someone drills you into the ground through a simple act of kindness. And you go, I didn't know shit. You know? Yeah, I think that's what travel does for me. It, there is a true beauty in the human spirit, and we fight against it, and we fuck it up all the time, and I, I, me as much as anyone. But there is magic in what it means to be human, and I have accessed it more on the road than anywhere else. That's great. That's great. Well, I appreciate you coming here. Thank you so this much for awesome. having this me. This was a lot of fun. This was incredible. Yeah. Thank you for your time and energy and for having me on the show. No, that's cool. I can't wait to hear about this festival. 
it's going to be awesome. I'm going to come back and have me back. <laughs> yeah, sure. Absolutely. And you do have a website, right? Of just your I do. Your name? Steve, Stephen S-T-E-P-H-E-N-B-R-A-M-U-C-C-I. <laughs> Ask for him by name. It's easier to say than spell. Yes. Bramucci. Stefano Antonio Bramucci. Si. Ciao. Grazie mille. <laughs>